These are some of the most famous pieces of music in Western music, how they were reinterpreted and how they were used just rocked my world. Welcome to Sync Love, sponsored by Syncfloor, a podcast where we get to chop it up about film, music, and production with experts from across the media landscape. The pairing of film and music is an inspiration to creatives everywhere. And for today's episode, the final one of this season, we bring you an interview with Josh Rabinowitz, a music consultant and former advertising music executive at Gray, who has made music an irrefutable part of the global branding discussion. Josh was the inaugural music jury president at Con Lion and has taught courses on music and media at Tufts University and the New School. We chose Stanley Kubrick's classic, A Clockwork Orange, as the film for today's discussion. But before diving in, I asked Josh how the pairing of music and film inspired him in his professional career. Um, the pairing of music and film was the first thing that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of what a piece of music could do with a piece of media. And the way I describe it is you have this concept or this visual going on and that it's value of one. Then you add music to it. So it's plus one more, but it doesn't equal two. Sometimes it equals like three. Sometimes it equals like 10. Sometimes it equals like 27,000. That's the power of music. No, I watched television when I was a kid, like most people, mainly in the 70s, 80s. And there was some interesting music going on with television, but most of it was cheesy. Most of it was kind of like jingles. So the real artsy stuff or the real creative stuff or the conceptual stuff was happening in film. And I was a big film geek. Most of the films that I really loved either were not your typical film, maybe what we would call independent film, or films that had a lot of depth. They, they had experimentation, they had creativity, and music was a big part of many of those films. So, for instance, in the 80s, someone like a Jim Jarmusch, who was a fiercely independent filmmaker who used amazing music, and he, the aura of musicians was important to him, so he would use a lot of music people in his films. Some of them were documentaries, some of them were playing themselves, and some of them were just actors, John Laurie or Tom Waits. Interesting, distinctive musicians that were part of his offering and his delivery and his aura, if you will. But I was also a big Mark Scorsese fan, and debatably the greatest film ever made was Goodfellas, and use of music in that film was about as high-end as it possibly could be. Another film that really rocked my world early on I didn't see it when it first came out, was The Graduate. And that's arguably the first time that the role of the music supervisor was kind of created, if you will. They didn't actually have the real music supervisor. They had an excellent editor. And I can't remember the person's name, but I know it was Mike Nichols who directed it. And they got Simon and Garfunkel involved in this film. And all kinds of amazing things were happening with the music as it was working with visuals. You know, it was definitely a controversial topic, not your typical run-of-the-mill social interaction film. And the music was just super powerful. And then I, I also remembered the song Mrs. Robinson was altered for the film. They were considering calling it Mrs. Roosevelt. And they came up with all these different concepts based on the film direction of Mike Nichols and altered their music to work with the script. And you hear aspects of the music that you don't hear on the recordings. It's different versions, some of them instrumental, some of it just guitar strumming. And that was really powerful to me. And that resonated with me as well. Other films that rocked my world were films like The Sting, which was period music, Scott Joplin, the ragtime music. That was just so powerful. And 
you know, I, I always enjoyed a really good score, Bernard Herman score. But when music existed for one reason and then utilized with film in a different way as a soundtrack, it took on this whole other meaning. And that's what Clockwork Orange did for me. I was a music student studying a lot of the music that was in that film. And then when I saw the film and I saw how they used the music, it just completely, it completely was a perception shift for me in terms of the power of, these are like some of the most famous pieces of music in Western music, classical music, how they were reinterpreted and how they were used. And that just like rocked my world. Yeah. It really changed my perception. I had friends that would buy soundtrack albums. And I always had a problem with buying soundtrack albums because I was like, yeah, it's not what the music was created for originally. I can listen to the music, but it's really important for me to see it, to hear it with the visual. So that film in particular really changed my perception. Another one that did was Wes Anderson films and uh, Quentin Tarantino films. Creative visionaries that you could tell music guided them in the way that they came up with their ideas. You know, then you flash forward into when I became professional and I really respected projects where people would come to me early on and ask for music advice. I loved when the music was driving their ideas or the music was the complete and utter driver of the idea. But what I also really loved about that aspect was how people would also let the music drive the idea but there was a juxtaposition. So for instance, in Goodfellas, they used the song Atlantis by Donovan, which is a very hippy dippy, positive, warm song that has some anthemic aspects. Not something that you would think about or align with violence, but it's used in one of the most violent scenes in the film. And it's such a powerful use that it really just resonates and it kind of... It's a misdirect and it takes you to a different place. It's the power of that juxtaposition that it's not music that you think you should be hearing, but when you hear it and it aligns with that visual or that concept or the combination of the visual and the concept, it takes you to a different place. Some people have said that it was a glorification of violence in some ways. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as just taking you to a different place so you could think of the concept and the visual in a different way, the storyline, the narrative, all of a sudden it's a shifter. And it, it just really kind of, it fucks with just, just your normal perception of music and film and just music in general. If you think about it, music scores throughout history were generally things that just enhanced the mood and they were direct hits in terms of the mood of the concept and the mood of the music. Then as people started to experiment and do these different things, you know, even like the sound of silence that was used in The Graduate, the way that piece of music was used was kind of bittersweet, or it was like at times really positive, even though it's kind of a dour, solemn song. Or it had like an extreme darkness plus some kind of extreme enlightenment. And in a way, the enlightenment and kind of spirituality that came out was really artful to me. And that's why when I did finally see Clockwork Orange, which I I'm not seen in several years, but probably saw about 20 times, um, it just completely rocked my world. That's great. I love your perspective on not just the history, but also the possibilities of how music and film come together. But if you were to meet someone from another world and have to tell them in a few sentences what you felt A Clockwork Orange is about, what would you tell them? 
good question. It's kind of a dystopian point of view of life in the 60s or 70s. I mean, it, it takes place in London, mainly. It's about misguided youth, but it, then it gets much deeper. It gets into futuristic look forward into how things may be. It deals with the world of violence in a very unique, distinctive way that's going to either really offend you or really awaken you and shift your perspective in a way. And then it deals with the justice system and how they're trying to kind of manage this type of violence from these alienated young people. But it has its own language to it. It's based on a book that did very well. Anthony Burgess, it's a, a fashion kind of statement. It plays to people's fears. It p- plays to the darker side of humanity. And I think that's what made it such an inspirational book. And then the way that Stanley Kubrick directed it with Malcolm McDowell as the lead, the way that story was told and was visualized and the way the music was used, it really bends your perception of cinema and understanding of culture. Could you pick out a couple scenes that you felt were particularly impactful to you when you experienced the film? Yeah, I mean, there were many. In terms of juxtaposition, there's a scene where there's some really violent stuff that happens, right? And interestingly, a lot of the, the films of Scorsese and Tarantino, people that I found to be inspired and creative, there's a lot of violence in there. And again, arguably, some people feel like the music softens the violence or puts it into a kind of twisted, warped perspective because you're, you're looking at it kind of from the point of view of the person that's perpetrating the violence. But one scene where there's a rape going on, the Malcolm McDowell character and his accomplices attack this home and... They're committing these egregious, odious acts to singing in the rain. And they're singing. And it's such a lighthearted, wonderful song that's used in a completely different way. I'm a big Beethoven fan. And they used the fourth movement of the Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy, in a very dynamic, powerful way. It's the music that this really violent character, Malcolm McDowell's character, uh, Alex, he loves the music of Beethoven. And the, the music is not only utilized in an orchestral way, but they also have this experimental composer who reconstitutes the music with synthesizers that were very modern and a vocoder, like the first use of a vocoder in film. So it was like really distinctive versions, arrangements, orchestrations of that famous piece of music. And there's one particular thing where they're playing the music and they're trying to convert him from this violent person to a nonviolent person. So anytime anything that would stir his emotions in terms of violent pursuits, they held his eyes open. I don't know if you've seen them. Yeah, yeah. It's all over the artwork, that image of him having his eyes held open. Yeah, it is exactly. And they have these weird eyelashes also. But two Beethoven's Night Symphony and it's juxtaposed with scenes of Nazi Germany and other kinds of violence, and destruction, and they're trying to use it to wean this guy off his ultra-violent tendencies. There's also a group sex scene that's done in really fast motion, super high speed, and they're using the William Tell overture. And it's just like a masterful use of a piece of music. Some other violence that happens is with some Rossini. So Rossini did do William Tell's Overture. He also did another one called La Gaza Ladra. It's like very kind of martial and marching and, and then this violence happens and it's like anthemic and celebratory 
but it's violence. And then the motif that's kind of the main theme that represents the, the main character, the Malcolm McDowell character, they reappropriated this old piece of music that I had known by Henry Purcell on these modern kind of synthesizers. And the composer's name was Wendy Carlos, but her original name was William Carlos because he converted his sex. It's, it's just taking music that was meant for one thing and completely recontextualized. And to me, that's the best when it's done right. And people try it all the time. They're like, oh yeah, we have this beautiful love scene. Let's get this punk rock version of an old love song and do it and it's kind of like gratuitous almost it doesn't really work necessarily so a lot of it is about the expertise and the creative kind of passion and thoughtfulness that goes into it to make it work yeah that's what this film represents to me some of the, the biggest most famous pieces of western classical music beethoven's night symphony arguably the greatest piece of music ever written this beautifully composed, constructed music at Beethoven's peak before he became deaf. It's, you know, it's high art being utilized. It's ballsy. It's risky to, to, to try to do something like that. People do all the time and it just doesn't always connect and resonate. And in this particular case, I feel like it exponentially resonates in kind of a very deep way. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. You know, as you were talking about the classical music used in the film and given your particular background and clear passion for the genre, I'm curious, is there a piece that you thought this should have been included. This should have been in there. In that particular movie, you know, I was amazed that they were able to use those pieces. And I think that was the thing that was most exciting to me. I was probably in high school when I first saw it. And I was in a music high school studying classical music. And I wasn't a classical music geek, but I was like into it. I was also into pop music and jazz music, as well as funk and soul and, and all kinds of reggae and scotch. But I was developing a real respect for that kind of music. So just the fact that they used those blew me away. It wasn't like they missed on anything. So what people do miss, because I've been in this thing for so long as a music supervisor and mainly a music producer, when they do miss in media, I think of like other options that they could have done or, or like if it almost works, I'm like, yeah, maybe if they did that. This particular movie, to be honest, is just so well done. Well, I'm curious now, since you've been in this industry and doing work on advertising for such a long time, what's the best example of that kind of juxtaposition that you've seen in the ad space? The ad space is not great. They're not very ironic or very juxtaposed. And it's sad. Sometimes what you will see is beautiful slow motion stuff for some kind of sporting NFL, ESPN kind of, you know, they, they do creative work and it's really slow, beautiful, languid music, just showing how balletic some of these athletes are. 
pointing to the glory and, and the beauty. And the grace. And the grace, exactly. In terms of other like well-known things, I mean, I don't know if it's a juxtaposition as much, but in 1999-2000, VW did this spot. Um, I'm not exactly sure what part it was. It was called Milky Way, the spot, and they used Nick Drake's Pink Moon. And what's interesting to me is I thought of the song as a song about a guy on heroin. And this was a really depressed character who had taken his own life, Nick Drake. And they used this music for a very beautiful, inspired commercial that helped a lot of independent artists actually reassess the role of music. And it opened the doors and the floodgates for a lot of these independent people to actually get involved in media. You know, that was about 20 years ago, which is kind of mind-blowing. Where'd the time go? I remember when it came out and I was kind of like, yeah, that's a really good use. That's unexpected. And then it was really powerful. So stuff like that, where it's just a really unique choice of something that was about something completely different. Who did it? Jaguar. Jaguar, the really high-end car company, used London Calling, their campaigns. And there was a lot of London stuff, imagery, and then talking about this really elite luxurious car but that's a real dystopian song you know london's burning and i live by the river you know it's really dark there were a lot of complaints about that and then other ones it was more the messaging of the song and what it represented originally and then how it's kind of reappropriated and some have argued misappropriated the song lust for life that was used in a carnival cruise ad and it really got iggy pop on the map again it was also used in the movie Train Spotting, where, where it was a much more appropriate use, right? Because it's about drug addicts and stuff like that. And then it was used for this, you know, people having fun and people screamed and yelled about it. But, you know, it worked super well. So it's kind of that juxtaposition of messaging and the narratives. Man, Josh, this has been amazing. Just how much you've taken us through not only on what we were planning to talk about, but such a thorough retrospective on the space. At this point, I think it'd be great to hear a little about what you're working on now. Well, I'm working on one project that's about done that was started in January in New Orleans, where I worked with a local band. And it's not released yet, so I can't really give you specifics. Just out of like a courtesy. Uh, Local band in New Orleans a cover of like an American classic song. They brought together tons of their friends, local musicians, amazing, inspired vocalists, and some kids and some spoken word people. We created this track and we're trying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the commercial now because of what's going on with COVID, how a lot of people have actually had to reassess what they're doing. But we, we did some live footage of the recording And it's really beautiful and meaningful and trying to get that finished. As a consultant, that was one of the first higher-end jobs that I worked on. And I guess what my expertise brought was within, you know, a limited, not versus an unlimited budget, able to get an important band, an emerging band to do this amazing song and take the concept of the song to another level. Doing a cover version to me is the f- most fun thing that I've ever done. And there have been many times where I've done cover versions and they're actually released by major record labels. And they were done as cover versions for a commercial first and then released by a major label afterwards because it was so good. 
a lot of that has to do with many factors. Another thing that I just finished up was a cover of a song that not a lot of people had heard about. The great thing was when I worked with some different musicians to produce the track, they all had never heard of it and they loved it. And they were like, wow, this is a song that I've never heard of. And I was really happy to do it. And we got a really great version of it. It's a male song. We had a woman sing it. And it's being used in a specific type of advertising that probably won't be broadcast uh, on, on television. And then another track that I did that just got released is a cover version of an old standard from Broadway and modernizing that. So those are like cool projects. And in a way, I think why I like doing covers so much is because of things like Clockwork Orange. That was the stuff that really excited me and inspired me and moved me in a way that I've never thought I could be moved. You know, you're taking something that has one context and then you're completely recontextualizing it. Wow, what a way to end the season. A wonderful retrospective on Stanley Kubrick's classic film and how it impacted the way we all think about music and picture coming together. Our heartfelt thanks to Josh Rinowitz for helping us to wrap this season's run. We'll see you all next time. And until then, keep listening to the movies. Sync Love is a co-production of Sync Floor and Electrocast Media. Our producer is David Towson. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rasmussen. Our editor is Cam Castro. Special thanks to Sinkflor artists Naka and Mokov and Sinkflor partner Motor Music for their musical contributions to the show, as well as designer Jeremiah Whitaker for our sequence cover art. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like this show, give us a rating and tell your friends. Until next time, I'm your host, Kurt Dedeek. Keep listening to the movies. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.